0: This podcast is brought to you by VinZero. VinZero pioneers solutions and services to the AEC and manufacturing industries to support net zero targets. Visit VinZero.com to learn more about how organizations design, build and solve through digitalization. From VinZero to you, welcome to our Think Future podcast series. Each week we'll share conversations with industry leaders from around the world to find out how they're thinking future. Subscribe to VinZero Think Future for access to more episodes, interviews and profiles. Monica Richter is an economist and social ecologist with extensive experience in environmental sustainability and an interest in the role of business in accelerating the uptake of low and zero carbon solutions. As program director for MECLA, Monica is passionate about driving radical collaboration across the construction and infrastructure sectors to align with the Paris Agreement objectives and the principles of the circular economy. Welcome to the program, Monica.
1: Thanks very much. Lovely to be here today. Monica, since
0: completing your degree in social ecology 22 years ago, you've been dedicated to engaging the business sector on being better corporate citizens and driving policy and regulation to better protect the environment. Can you tell us a little about that journey and about who and what is MECLA?
1: So I, you know, my first job was working in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, trained as an economist, and then through that time, I was really looking at the role of the business sector and went to do a master's degree in social ecology, looking at the role of the corporation as activist. That's what my master's degree was on and this was in the sort of mid-90s when corporate social responsibility wasn't all that fashionable and I landed a job uh, at Greenpeace as a corporate campaigner and worked there for five years and gosh it was such an important uh, experience in my own journey around understanding the role of corporates, both you know good corporates and how difficult it is for, for corporates to be good corporate citizens and some of the big challenges and you know also some of the greenwashing that occurs. I then moved to the Australian Conservation Foundation and had nearly 10 years as an policy advocate, but also working with business. You know, we had a range of very big industries who people are very familiar with. Uh, and we advocated for a long, loud and legal price signal. Uh, in the lead up to introducing I guess the first round of carbon price you know the importance of having price on carbon as an incentive to decarbonize the economy and then I have been at the worldwide fund for nature for the last 10 years uh, in a similar role looking at supply chains for soft and hard commodities but also looking at, how business can be a force for good to help to decarbonise the economy. And through a number of initiatives, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which for the first time has supported companies to set 1.5 degree aligned targets, thinking about a carbon budget, you know, very new concepts that uh, companies have had to get a, their head around, as well as thinking about not just their direct emissions within their business, but also their indirect emissions or what is otherwise called scope three emissions, which is very fashionable to talk about now. But you know, six years or so ago, no one really understood what scope three emissions are. So we've come a long way so i helped to establish the business renewable center which uh, again was an initiative to help companies and councils to procure renewable electricity as part of what is you know called scope 2 emissions through large Uh, scale procurement of solar and wind uh, across different parts of Australia. So these power purchase agreements were the first models coming through the pipeline. We saw Google and Apple doing it in the US and we said, well, why can't we do it here in Australia? And so we set this initiative up to be able to to support companies to do that through wholesale retail contracts and then over the last couple of years thinking about companies in the construction and building industry where 40 percent of Australia's emissions are uh, thinking about how companies could help to reduce the their scope 3 emissions or the embodied carbon, in the construction industry and uh, the focus on steel, concrete, aluminium, engineered timber, and many of the other materials that go into the built environment for the roads we use, the houses we live in and work in, and the trains we catch. Uh, so Mecla is an ecosystem trying to, you know, of organizations trying to drive decarbonisation across the building material supply chain uh, through I guess, a pre-competitive partnership model, looking at what the pain points are of the different sectors and coming together very generously to share uh, knowledge and build capability in seeking to drive that decarbonisation of the material supply chain.
0: And Monica, out of the work with MECLA, you have identified the need for what you call radical collaboration. What is that?
1: So radical collaboration is, as it sounds, how do different companies across the supply chain ecosystem who are traditionally competitors come together in a pre-competitive environment to achieve good against something bigger than their commercial needs? Uh, So the radical collaboration is no one company No one part of the construction ecosystem can achieve the decarbonisation challenges alone, so it requires all players across all parts of the ecosystem to be able to do that so think architects designers structural engineers head contractors developers material suppliers government agencies financiers all of that part of the ecosystem needs to be at the table to be looking at what those key pain points are what the barriers are and working uh, collectively to solve some of those key challenges around demand side. How do we get procurement agencies to be demanding low carbon materials? How do we measure embodied carbon in a way that is easy to understand and you know, creates consistency of that measurement around calculators and tools, an area that's very complex? How do we help organisations to specify low carbon materials while, without having unintended consequences at the other end. So radical collaboration is very much about trust. Organisations have to come to the table with a high degree of trust, that they're sharing knowledge, that generosity of knowledge that they do share, and they have to be very respectful of uh, one another as we drive in that decarbonisation journey. You know, you can't be putting you know, for example, the very complex challenges that perhaps a, a steel uh, industry has, particularly if they're manufacturing through blast furnace technology. You know, you, you can be putting some pressure on them to decarbonize faster, but you've got to be respectful of the technological challenges that we are facing. So, the, you know, those are very complex conversations that we've had to face with uh, across the different participants at the table and having all organizations have buy-in to be part of this journey together and some of it is you know it is pre-commercial so what does it take to collaborate successfully for example, I was having a meeting a couple of weeks ago with one of the key head contractors. They wanted to say, well, what's the value proposition for MECLA? And, you know, I was able to share with them the names of some of the other organisations as head contractors participating and some of the targets that they've set, some of the levels of ambition and that they're starting to achieve and the connections they're making and they're going, oh, well, we better be at the table as well. We don't want the knowledge to just be in the, hands of the sustainability engineers we actually want it to be right across the organization so they're thinking how important it is to build that capability right across the organization not just for the sustainability managers So coming back to that question about radical collaboration, it really is about building strong partnerships to achieve change at that pre-competitive level um, beyond what we've achieved before, being very respectful, being very generous uh, with that and achieving change at that systems level uh, interventions that build strong capacity
0: what role does policy and regulation need to play to support transition
1: so what we're seeing at the moment is that the corporate sector you know the private sector they are absolutely on the demand side you know there's each state jurisdiction in Australia is spending something like 70 billion dollars in infrastructure investment over the next 20 years and if we can achieve decarbonisation in the materials that are being used, you know, that's the key lever for helping Australia to achieve its decarbonisation targets and be more ambitious. So the demand-side lever, the government as a procurer of these materials through its specifications, through setting high ambitious targets, is very, very vital to achieving that change. And private sector can't do it alone. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it can be quite an adversarial environment between government and the private sector. And the private sector has been speaking to government and saying, "Please engage us early in conversations if you want to have a specific outcome on a project that has ambitious targets around embodied carbon. Talk to us early. Tell us what you want. We can help to provide some." Guidance and certainty, and once you engage us, then we're able to meet to meet those ambitious targets because we've got you know the structural engineers and the thinkers that can go away and create the the what you need out of it. But if you're uh, holding us away from the conversations and you've already set the benchmarks, then we can only respond to what those benchmarks are. So there's a really clear role for governments to be driving that um, change and engaging industry early in making that happen.
0: And you just mentioned then the word materials. So MECLA are providing a spotlight on the use of regenerative materials for the built environment through educational forums.
1: What are the next wave of regenerative materials? Well, it's such an exciting area to be thinking about biomaterials. So think mycelium, you know, um, fungus, mushrooms. Mycelium is the network of materials that are in the soil that we don't really think about when we're walking over soil but it is the absolute connector in nature and we can be harvesting this uh, mycelium and using it for our walls, our interior uh, designs, and of course, if you think about what those principles are around regenerative design, then you want to be using materials that you can put back into nature when you've finished using them. So they're biodegradable. Uh, other materials, many different uh, types of bamboo that are available for housing construction. Hempcrete is another one, you know, these are all. Uh, low carbon, as well as uh, providing a guidance towards this new trend around biomaterials so that we design out waste and that it has an opportunity to create that biophilic design, bringing nature from the outside in. So if we're talking about
0: adapting existing materials in biophilic and regenerative ways... Can you give an example of some of those materials you've just talked about there, particularly mycelium, for example, uh, in terms of how that would be used indoors or in an actual setting?
1: Yeah, so the mycelium could be used... You know, uh, as decorative materials for tiles, for example, in in kitchen areas or in lounge rooms, could be decorative walls. So, an area that is really at the very nascent stage for us to be thinking about and looking at. I think mycelium is one of those. Super materials that will be able to rely on in the future, and if you think about the city of Amsterdam, so they now have put in place a requirement that all new buildings must have a minimum of twenty percent biomaterials in its um, in the building of those uh, new facilities. So you can see a whole new industry opportunity being established just by one of having, having a very clever policy like that. And if that, that creates a whole new industry policy or a whole new industry, that's the opportunity for innovators to come on board and, and, and really drive that, that change And so it's, you know, not just mycelium, but think of offices that you go into or buildings that you go into where there's a lot of timber and wood panels, certainly in our office, WWF office in Ultimo, it's an old wool shed and we've got these beautiful wooden stumps where you walk in. We have the biophilic design where there is uh, melaleuca bark around the tops of that and it immediately... Uh, gives one a sense of being in nature and being surrounded by by nature. And that's very good, not just for environmental reasons, but obviously we are also sort of connected beings to, to nature and we need to be connected to, to nature to thrive and to be healthy. So you create these healthy, restful workplaces that are also good for productivity.
0: So the mycelium sounds like it is a fibrous type of decorative overlay almost that you can use on the exterior surface of a wall or a a piece of furniture um, from an aesthetic point of view. Does it have any other qualities?
1: Definitely an aesthetic uh, piece to it and there's also some structural piece to it as well. It's very, very strong. Uh, you know equivalent to a hempcrete for example they've done some tests on it so the tensile strength is is pretty good Uh, you know you know we're still going to need to use cement and steel and those materials but it's definitely one of those materials that one could see being used in new homes for example that create a different sense of of connection to to land uh, and, yeah, nature out in uh, as we, you know, build, build these new net zero carbon or zero carbon carbon homes for sure.
0: So is this how you define being nature positive?
1: That's a good question. Um, nature positive is, uh, you know, it has a range of different, I guess, purposes, and one of those is to get people and businesses, organisations, to be thinking about how we can preserve biodiversity. Uh, So it really is about thinking about the value of the ecosystem services that we have that are naturally around us, you know, the plants, the insects that pollinate the food, uh, the water that we drink from that is, you know, filtered through natural systems and the the land that uh, hosts the trees and, you know, shrubs that uh, we rely on for, Uh, the living, breathing system, for us to be considered as good stewards of the biodiversity and to be nature positive, we really need to be thinking not just to stop the deforestation and the clearing of the land, but also how do we actually give back to creating more connectivity in our biodiversity areas, uh, ensure that we aren't actually doing damage to our high conservation value areas, that we're planting more trees, putting back more shrubs, and that we're looking after the the critters that are part of Australia's very strong uh, ecosystems. It's a different way of thinking about about nature and biodiversity as well. So, the nature positive piece is about creating uh, and supporting, whether it's farmers, whether it's you know community members, whether it's businesses, to be investing and reinvesting in the biodiversity piece. And of course, remembering that our First Nations people are the first stewards of our land here. And uh, learning from our First Nations people on how they have gone about looking after you know, the custodianship of this country over the last 60,000 years. And we've got a lot to learn on how to think about the land uh, as the mother. I really think that this time is such a good opportunity for us to be uh, working through that thought process on nature positive, but also through the eyes of our Indigenous uh, people as well. You're
0: working with and talking to so many corporations in Australia. Who is impressing you and why?
1: Oh, gosh. I have the great privilege when I sit into the various meetings through MECLA, the Materials and Embodied Carbon Leaders Alliance. We have eight working groups. They meet monthly and we have the most extraordinary discussions with people who come together to try and resolve a range of issues. Just one example is the good work of the aluminium working group, Hassel. Uh, they're an architectural group. Morgan is the chair of that group. And he is really seeking to help drive the appetite for procuring lower carbon aluminium facades for Australian companies, and he's doing that with the support of a range of representatives from a whole range of companies, manufacturers, head contractors from John Holland, Lend-Lease. I'm really impressed by the commitment that the organisations make to do that. Uh, We have other organisations like Mervac and Stockland who are deeply committed to the journey that we are on if you think about where you know we are at the moment it it is uh, very heartening that companies you know not only are they setting science-based targets and being quite ambitious and driving that change but they're also looking at at their supply chain and making that contribution and commitment to to driving that so you know companies like lend-lease who've set an absolute zero target have a lot to live up to and they've said you know we can't do it alone we actually need to be partnering with organizations blue scope you know Steve Steel manufacturer, um, blast furnace steel, very complex challenges that they face here in Australia and the need to invest in you know, the hydrogen piece to be able to drive emission reduction targets for their blast furnace steel manufacturing facility at a time when the price of hydrogen you know the technology available it isn't quite there yet Uh, so you know they're having to make some pretty clear and complex decisions there but I, i think that you know they're they're on the way and they're very transparent and very uh engaged in in trying to do what they consider to be uh, the right uh, direction for that company. You now we've got the whole seams and the borals and Cement Australia and ma- many companies that are involved in cement and concrete. Uh, you know Wagner's Earth Friendly Concrete as well. So many of these companies are deeply committed and engaged, and if pretty much every person we speak to is on that journey, trying to do the best they can uh, within their limitations to achieve that. So building and constructions there, uh, I'd love to do a shout out to the Green Building Council and the Infrastructure Sustainability Council as well, because both of those organisations are absolutely leading the charge on doing what they can within their remit to help drive that decarbonisation for construction.
0: Are you looking for a digitalization and net zero partner to help you achieve your goals? Join the thousands of AEC and manufacturing customers globally who have turned to VinZero to start their journey toward a net zero future. With 32 offices around the world, VinZero can connect you to the right technologies and workflow processes, so you can maintain your competitive position and increase profitability. VinZero has an industry expert to help you navigate the best pathway forward wherever you are on your digitalisation and net zero journey. Visit binzero.com to find out more. So it certainly is a collaborative effort required to reduce emissions and manage climate risk. In your view, what are the barriers we still face to mass adoption and using both materials and approaches that can support a low carbon footprint?
1: I think one of the key delays is the perceived cost of low carbon materials. I mean, there is a perception that it's going to cost more uh, because, you know, traditionally government agencies have made uh, the decision around who they're going to contract with cost, time, quality. Uh, and carbon is only a recent addition to that. So if it's, if it's treated as an equivalent and if it's in the business case really early on that it becomes just a level playing field to consider the carbon piece, then it makes it an easier decision to drive that. So I still think there's some way to go, particularly some jurisdictions uh, who are you know, a bit resistant to – to change, they are concerned about it. You know, there there is some concern amongst the project managers on who's going to carry the risk for some of the innovative materials that might be used. You know, who's going to sign off on uh, a lower carbon concrete if it hasn't had fifty years of being tried and tested? I guess one of the other uh, barriers and it's a very important one for Australia at the moment, is the capacity and the capability to be really understanding what the key issues are and how we go about doing it. So, you know, one of the things that uh, we really pride ourselves on within MECLA is the running of our spotlight events. You know, these are the events where we tackle different issues like the regenerative materials one, but we're bringing a whole range of different players to the table to share their knowledge and build the capacity and understanding of these issues right across the industry. So that capacity building, education and skills development is fundamental to us achieving success in this journey uh, together. You know, it is a team sport sport. Uh, as Davina Rooney likes to call it, (laughs) the decarbonisation process as well. So you've supported and initiated three programs in
0: Australia and the first program was the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Was that perhaps a little ahead of
1: its time? So the Science-Based Target Initiative came out of... Well, I guess it's a global initiative uh, in the lead-up to the Paris Agreement in 2015 with uh, WWF, the World Resources Institute, CDP, as the Carbon Disclosure Project, and Global Compact uh, together uh, launched the target as a way to help companies understand a couple of different concepts. One is 1.5 degree pathway. And the carbon budget and what is a sector's fair share based on the International Energy Agency's um, energy transmissions pathways. And the other is for companies to be looking at not just their scope one and two emissions, but their scope three emissions as well. So, their direct emissions that they have absolute responsibility for, but also the indirect emissions where they have to influence the achievements that are made, not just Directly responsible, but for the the ability to influence uh, those changes, and that has meant as companies look down their supply chain, whether you're a you know Woolworths with forty thousand product lines, and you're starting to engage your supply chain on how you go about reducing your emissions that you can influence, or whether you're a Lend-Lease, that set a science-based target and looking at your supply chain. I mean, these are really um, complex supply chains that require a whole-of-life intervention you know, as we think about it. So the Science-Based Targets Initiative, yes, you could say it was a little bit ahead of its time, particularly when you had the TCFD Uh, The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure came out in 2015, 2016. I spent a lot of time... You know, with my briefcase in one hand, walking down the streets of talking to companies over that period from 2015, 2016 through to 2019, uh, really engaging people and building up that capability and capacity with having a community of practice for companies to be able to do the work, helping consultants to consult to companies as well uh, through that time. Uh, But I think it's now pretty much mainstream. And the good thing is that companies are rolling up their sleeves and they're in the doing process. They really are enabled to, you know, how do we go from policy, thinking about it, setting that target to the implementation and that cross collaboration across different industry sectors to achieve that change. So it will continue to grow. We now have, I think, 78 companies across Australia that have made a commitment to set or set science based targets. And quite a few ASX-listed companies as well have gone on that journey together.
0: And out of that program came another two initiatives, the Renewable Energy Buyers Forum that became the Business Renewable Centre Australia, or BRCA, and the Materials and Embodied Carbon Leaders Alliance, which of course is MECLA. What can you tell us about the BRCA? So
1: the Business Renewable Centre is a model that the Rocky Mountains Institute originally set up. And it is, again, taking a problem around how companies can procure renewable electricity and how developers want to build renewable electricity and how the finance sector can finance renewable energy at a large scale and bringing those different parties together to help to accelerate uh, the purchase, procurement, building and financing of renewable electricity here. So, you know, we originally had a lot of people coming to conversations, understanding what are the pain points, the key barriers for the uptake, finance sector saying, well, we can only sign a contract for 20 to 25 years. And companies see saying, my CFO would never sign off on a contract, that's 20 years, <laughs> well, even 10 years is a chance challenge and over time you could see the shift finding a sweet spot between those different entities you know contracts of let's say 5 to 10 years sharing some of that risk a price point that was, you know, $120 a megawatt hour to 50, 60, 70 dollars a megawatt hour, uh, create, you know, lots of volatility in the wholesale market where a long-term contract could provide some of that certainty for companies there. So it really helped to shift the marketplace, and now power purchase agreements, whether they're retail or whether they're wholesale, it's standard business practice for businesses now to be making commitments around 100% renewable electricity. Uh, so that's you know, re- really exciting to see the you know, intervening in those systems levels can really affect change.
0: They certainly can. And you talk a lot about system thinking or a system thinking approach to problem solving. What role does this play in the radical collaboration piece?
1: Ah, I think systems thinking is something that is underrepresented in the way we've been looking at our, you know, the major challenges. But it is a way of, you know, if we've got a whole range of wicked problems that no one person, no one industry, you know, government can't solve it, industry can't solve it, civil society can't solve it, but if we bring, if we understand what, the system looks like that ecosystem and then we think about what those key intervention points are to enable that change to occur systems thinking always comes back to the ability of the partnership of those different parts of the supply chain or the system to to drive that change and they have to be willing players in the ecosystem you know there's no point in Trying to engage people who don't want to change. You know, you've got to have people who are at the table who are willing to change and be part of the systems change conversations. Sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's painful. We know change isn't always comfortable, but they've got to be willing to be at that table to make that change occur. So a systems level intervention uh, would result, I think, in a much bigger way, more significant change in achieving a systems level change than, let's say, just an ordinary, org. you know, government is the key and you know, only focus on government advocacy is the way to achieve change. You actually need to be able to think about what those different elements of that critical uh, pathway are. And then the systems change approach is... I guess, a much more powerful tool that we have to enable what we call that radical collaboration.
0: So how will we create a circular economy for the built environment?
1: It's a fantastic question and it's very interesting to hear our environment minister make a commitment at the Circular Economy Conference a few weeks ago that you know, she wants to help support Australia become a circular economy by 2030. I mean, that is huge. Let's not underestimate the challenges that uh, we face to achieve that challenge. Definitely a hairy, audacious goal uh, that she's put in front of us <laughs> as a society. Uh, and I guess we've got a few really good... Uh, examples already of organisations and governments working well together. You know, Ecologic, which is a program that the Victorian government run, is a fabulous example of a, com- a, go- a government that said, "Okay, we have a waste problem because, of course, China said no more exporting of waste from Australia. We need to be looking at where we can use those materials in our construction materials." Uh, in infrastructure and as a result they've kick started a whole new revolution in the way that uh, you know these so-called waste materials are used uh, in in roads in panels alongside highways so so many different ways that they've uh, really thought about that so I'd highlight that we've we're already doing some really really good things in this area and much more needs to be done. And we need what we call, you know, sticks and carrots as well as tambourines. So we need a shout out to the places and the policies and the initiatives that are doing really well and celebrate their successes and learn from them and see if we can duplicate that in different jurisdictions. We obviously need to be internalising those externalities and putting a price uh, so that we drive the market just as we could do with carbon. With the carbon price, we could do the same so that we provide incentives for reducing waste through extended producer responsibility. And then thinking about new business opportunities, you know, just as we've seen Airbnb and Uber and a whole new way of using assets as a, as a service, we could be encouraging companies to be thinking about products as a service so that if you're a white goods manufacturer, instead of selling a white good to a household, if it's a service and you're kind of renting it or you can take it back to the company and get an upgrade, you're you know, recirculating all of those materials in the system where each white good. Each electronic equipment has very rare metals, the critical minerals that we're going to need for our renewable energy future. And we can repurpose and reuse those critical materials for use rather than it going to landfill. So I think the opportunities are endless. Uh, let's, you know, light the fire and ignite Uh, all of those different innovative opportunities uh, for us and you know let's celebrate the successes that we've had and support it through those different jurisdictions so I would you know there's we've got a couple of great organisations who are already doing some wonderful work as enablers and connecting. You know, Ace Hub is there through Planet Ark. We've got Circular Australia as well. And let's work together, build the capacity for us to really think and be inspired by those opportunities to achieve change. And we will achieve change.
0: We've certainly come a long way, but there's still much heavy lifting to be undertaken for global targets. So who and where does it need to be done in your opinion?
1: Yes, there's certainly a lot that needs to be done. Um, We are still nowhere near a 1.5 degree warming pathway, you know, where something I think with the current commitments on the table and some of those other announcements, we might be lucky to be at somewhere equivalent to a 2.8 degree pathway or more, um, somewhere between 2.8 and 3.2. I'd have to look at Carbon Tracker to see uh, where we are. So big opportunities for us over this decade, and it's this decade that's the most critical We've got to get out of the methane game. Uh, We have to stop uh, methane through... Oil and gas, capping oil and gas, putting a just transition on no more oil and gas exports from Australia. I think that's going to be critical over this next decade to be making sure that that happens. Also on the methane front, uh, we need to be thinking about and investing in reducing the burping from our cattle. Very, very big problem for us. You know, it's something equivalent of 14 to 18% of Australia. emissions. So how do we do that? We have to drive innovation in the asparagopsis. Uh, So, you know, seaweed supplements into cattle or other supplements into cattle to reduce the amount of burping. Uh, And slowly as we move to manage our landscapes and agricultural systems better, that's going to be a critical element to our success, but we we have to get onto that problem. It is, you know, methane has a short-lived life, but it is something like uh, 20 times more greenhouse intensive than um, CO2, so hence the urgency of that issue. Industry decarbonisation is going to continue to play a critical role, and there's going to be a lot more cooperation required uh, with Australia and our major trading partners, you know, China, Japan, Korea, India. I mean, we are, you know, this is the Asian century, and Australia is well placed to take uh, a step in the front seat to be able to help drive that through our critical minerals that we have here in Australia, but also in how we help to decarbonise steel manufacturing and manufacturing of other uh, key heavy industry sectors in the region. Uh, so, you know, that's going to need to have some serious thinking about the iron ore export industry, metallurgical coal, and so on. Uh, some heavy lifts going to be required there. And I guess the other is around the deforestation piece and thinking about the climate and nature conversation is is a very important part of that as well. Can't do it without thinking about the circular economy, but you know, I think we're well on the way to achieving uh, that change.
0: So, with so many initiatives already underway and so many companies that are doing great things, when you think about the industry overall and you think future, what excites you the most?
1: Oh, the most exciting thing is, we, you know, we're now in a point of history where we don't have any more excuses with the science is very clear we have the ticking time there we have to try and keep warming to as close to 1.5 as we possibly can and industry is rolling up its sleeve you know whether you're thinking about india whether you're thinking about china japan korea indonesia every country in the region and globally is dealing with very similar uh, challenges, and I suspect that pretty much each company is in that can do, will do, must do uh, moment, and it's it's really building that capacity for greater. Uh, collaboration and working together, and that—that's there. New ways of thinking, new ways of doing business. It is a pre-competitive approach, but I think that we need to be able to be thinking in a different way to achieve the speed and scale of the change that we need. So. I'm an optimist by nature. It's sobering to be when one when thinks about the science, but we are in the can-do and operationalising and implementing, really implementing uh, the changes that we believe need to, to happen.
0: And I'm sure much of it's going to be achieved through radical collaboration. Monica, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity.
0: This podcast was brought to you by VinZero. VinZero help the AEC and manufacturing industries keep pace with digital change and achieve their technological and sustainability leadership goals. VinZero is a company that cares about creating and building a better world. Together, we are working with industry and environmental experts, providing forums and platforms through our VinZero Think community to create conversations that matter to our future generations. We invite you to join in the conversation and participate in our Think community. Like and subscribe to Think Future to stay up to date with the latest innovations and conversations as we take AEC and manufacturing around the world closer to zero. You can download our podcasts at VinZero.com or from your favourite podcast platform. From VinZero Think Future, thanks for listening.